Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Good morning, Gary. Hey, Mike. How are you? Good, good, good. And, and welcome to our Crux listeners. We have a terrific guest today with Alan Murray, the CEO of uh, Fortune Media and editor of Fortune Magazine. But first, we have some news. The first item I'd like to bend your ear on, Gary, is Warner Brothers is said to release all of its new 2021 movies simultaneously on HBO Max. Now, you used to work at GE, and GE was the owner of NBC, a big player in the entertainment industry. At a movie and studio, the, yep, yep. Yep, and on the crux, we've talked a bit about how the economics of the news business is changing. It's also true of the entertainment industry, and with this past week's announcement where Warner Brothers is saying that it, in the next year, it will release all of its new movies simultaneously for one month only on HBO Max, along with providing the same features to theater chains like AMC and Regal. Now, do you think this is a, a momentary change as a result of the pandemic, or do you think it is a move to a new normal? where more of us will be looking for content at home and online. And ultimately, what does this then mean for movie theaters and maybe even for popcorn? Oh, man, I love popcorn. So do I. I'm, I'm sorry. Some some kid is chick, kicking my chair behind me here, Mike, you know, and I ask him to quiet down during the movie. Anyway, <laughs> I, I do think, look, it's going to be a mix. The movies are meant to be seen on the big screen. Like, you know, who's the founder? Jack L. Warner, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and there is something magical about that. And, and many, many people doing some reading about this still hope that that can be the case. Nonetheless, as my sorry kicking the chair joke tells, <laughs> that there is with 70 inch high def TVs, some of that can be captured in your living room now. So I think, unfortunately, a lot of movie houses are going to go out of business. Independence, particularly, Mike, I think will be hard hit by this. Yeah, They can't negotiate sort of collectively like AMC, the big ones that you mentioned, AMC and Regal. Regal. It's going to be tough on studios too. So I think it'll be a hybrid, but I think we'll see a lot less movie houses. And I just wonder, just knowing a little bit about the movie business from my time at GE, you know, the, the whole economic model has become these tent poles. Yeah. where it's the Marvel movies and Star Wars movies that really support the rest of the movie business. Mm -hmm. And those are really big at the box office. And so are the economics, the finances of the movie business going to be such that you can't make those kinds of movies anymore? Yeah. You yeah. know, those big blockbusters. So I'm hoping, I love going to the movies. I love popcorn. 
If you guys yeah. could see me on camera now, you could tell that I love popcorn. Looking <laughs> at my waistband. What do you think? I, I agree. I mean, I've always loved going to the movies for for several years when I was growing up as a kid in Southern California. We actually lived in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I used to go to some of these theaters where they trial out the new movies, and and, and I guess yep. they would show different endings, so they determine you know what ending they ultimately go with. So I was always fascinated by it. And I always love that experience of being in a big, dark theater with all the, you know, movement on that on that film screen. To your point, I mean, it's a little bit like, actually, I think the newspaper business in terms of yeah, totally. how do things ultimately get monetized? I think near term, there is the question that, you know, people don't necessarily want to be bottled up inside with, you know, hundreds of people breathing right. on each other as they're watching a movie. And it's it's prompting different behaviors. And I think that's going to be tough to overcome near term. Yeah. And meanwhile, it just may be, you know, that this moves beyond to a different space. I mean, I think about, you think about different times in which trade routes changed because of different wars, mm -hmm. because of different policies. And oftentimes those don't come back. I mean, classic tale right now is to look at Cuba. You know, the Obama administration was getting back to trying to recognize the, the Cuban government. And there were lots of people that had hopes and dreams of being yeah. able to revitalize the sugar market and the cigar market. And, but the, the simple fact is, is those trade routes have been reworked since the 1950s, yeah. you know, and, and not likely or easily to, to come back. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that may be the case here. Anyway, what I want to do now is transition from HBO Max to the 737 yeah. Max. You know, back in March of 2019, Boeing's 737 Max, which had been a much heralded, narrow-bodied passenger airliner, was grounded after two crashes, one that had taken place in October of 2018, another one that had taken place in March 2019. And according to the New York Times at the time, the, the, the two planes lacked two notable safety features in their cockpits because Boeing charged extra for them. Mm -hmm. Indeed, one of the features found on earlier versions of the plane that warned pilots of malfunctioning sensors had been deactivated. There were also software issues and pilot training issues. There are a whole host of issues, right? And early media responses from the company were less than transparent. It was more like the classic drip, 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 mm -hmm. where we learn something new every day as different news organizations press the company and investors press the company. Fred Garcia, who's a, a crisis consultant and a friend who I've known for some time, he said, trust didn't fall because two of its planes crashed. You know, trust fell because they were seen to be indifferent. While we could talk forever about Boeing's response, what I actually want to discuss with you today, Gary, is the fact that American Airlines is gearing up to start flying the 737 MAX. And indeed, just this past week, they held briefings for reporters and analysts, and they made their first flight with 140 passengers on board to demonstrate the MAX's safety. American has also made it known 
that all of its 2,700, 737 MAX pilots will have been fully trained in the classroom, on simulators, and in the skies before they fly with passengers. American Airlines also has said that it will allow customers free of charge to opt out of MAX flights and will be able to find flight on non-MAX flights along the same corridors or connections. Its return to service is actually scheduled for December 29th. There will be round trips from Miami to New York LaGuardia. That will grow in January to include flights at JFK and Washington Reagan. What I want to know is from a public relations, from a communication standpoint, is American Airlines doing the right things in a way that the public should be generally reassured? Or is this a little late, not enough? And when will you be on your first flight from New York to DC? <laughs> well, you know, I'm more concerned about COVID than I am about these planes, to be mm -hmm. honest, Mike. And, and I'd be happy to fly on one of them. I, I do think American is doing the right thing. And when you said you wanted to talk about this, I took a look at its website and some of the communications and it's pretty good. Yeah. And, and, and the thing that resonates with me, Mike, is the message, Americans pilots would never fly an unsafe plane. Mm -hmm. You know, and that use of the credibility of the pilots, mm -hmm. I think has been highly effective. And, right. and I would continue to emphasize that if I were American, because clearly the whole Boeing case, as recently said in the New York Times, capitalism going awry, not to relitigate that, but seeing the airlines do the right thing here. I wish they'd started a little earlier and it's been difficult for them to get some visibility maybe in the middle of everything that's going on to get this message out because- Well, they had to get the green light from FAA first. Yeah, totally, exactly, too, right? exactly. But it's, it's very good. It's a little technical, yeah. right? Some of the stuff is a little technical, but they use their most credible people well which are the folks who fly those planes. I agree with you. I agree with you. What I'd like to move from is now fear of flying to fear of vaccines. Former U.S. President Barack Obama was interviewed this past week on Sirius XM's Urban View. And on the program, he said he'd be willing to be among the first to take the coronavirus vaccine and that he'd actually do it on television. And then shortly thereafter, I think representatives for George W. Bush and Bill Clinton were also asked and the message came back loud and clear. All three of them are willing <laughs> to be inoculated in public. And part of this is interesting to me on, on kind of two different levels. One, we, we've talked a lot on this show about the public mistrust of science, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And, and more specifically, there are people on the left and on the right who have been wary of vaccinations in the past. And then even during the political campaign, when it, I think it was because of President Trump's insistence that we're going to have the vaccine by election day and, and the obvious push from the administration to get this out there as some kind of political ploy. We had the vice president-elect at one point during the campaign say she wouldn't take the vaccine right. until it, it was clear that this wasn't just a political move. But as the act of former presidents 
taking the coronavirus vaccine on television really necessary? Is it just a publicity stunt? And if it's necessary, why do you think it's necessary? Well, you know, again, when you brought this up as a topic for today, I went back and looked whether this had ever been done before. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1956, Elvis took live on television the polio vaccine. And the king. And the king. And, and Forget about my, presidents. Exactly. I'll do my <laughs> Elvis here in a minute. Because they apparently were having problems. You know, younger people were getting vaccinated, Mike. But teenagers, of course, who adored Elvis were not. According to what I had the chance to read, highly effective. That he was uh-huh. very influential in influencing teenagers to take the vaccine. So I say anything that gets people to think about this in a clear way is a good thing. It's overly politicized. I mean, it it really, to your point, how did it become, vaccines become so politicized? And I don't know what kind of poll it was yesterday, Mike, but on the front page of the New York Post was a poll that said something like 70% of the New York City Police Department wouldn't take the wouldn't wow. Take the vaccine. Wow. And, and I find it really hard to understand that kind. Of, we, we need to get to 70 to 80 percent, as I understand it, yeah, absolutely. To, to be effective here for herd immunity. So I hope the presidents and others will be emphasizing the effectiveness of this vaccine and doing it in a very public, clear, non-political way. Yeah, I'm with you. I'll take the shot. I'll be on that plane. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got to do Elvis. Put the vaccine right here, baby. No, that's not. You can't. That's how he looked. He looked. He had his shirt rolled up and they were putting the vaccine in. Anyway, I'll work on it, listeners. I'm sorry. It's much better. Much better when I have a beer. Uh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Well, thank you, Gary. And now tell us about our guest today. So we're just really thrilled to have Alan Murray with us, one of the most respected people. And, you know, in, in business journalism today, and, and I, I say this about Alan, I think Alan is probably the business journalist and now CEO at Fortune Media Group, who understands what we do, communicators, PR professionals, what we do maybe more than anybody I've had the occasion to talk with in my career. So really happy to have him on the cross. Right. Hello, everyone. And our guest today on The Crux is one of the most respected business journalists in the world, Alan Murray, who's the president and CEO of the Fortune Media Group. And Alan oversees editorial and business operations. He is known in the past for expanding the company's digital and conference franchises. He's also the author of the must-read Fortune CEO daily, which I can't tell you, Alan, how many C-suite executives tell me they read every day. Previously, Alan worked for the Wall Street Journal in a variety of roles. Alan, I think you did digital there. You led digital at the Journal for a while. Deputy managing editor and Washington bureau chief. And you're also the president of the Pew Research Center for about two years. So quite, quite a background. But nothing like what Alan is doing now, which is transforming one of the most revered titles in the journalism world, Fortune has really invented itself over the past year. It was sold 
fortune was sold. And I won't try to say the name of your owner. Uh, chat, I think, is the best way to say it. Giravanan. I'm happy to fill in if you need it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so we'll talk to Alan about the transformation of fortune, trends in CEO activism, which he writes a lot about, including today, and, and what American business should expect from the Biden administration. So Alan, welcome to the crux. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that incredible introduction. Now, now I'm going to have to make my mother listen to the podcast. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> That's the only people I want to listen to our podcast is our mothers, right? You know? So in addition to writing about and interviewing CEOs, you're now a CEO yourself. And so I want to ask you is, do you really miss running the editorial staff at Fortune or do you enjoy spending more time with investment bankers? <laughs> you know, I did spend a pretty incredible two years of my life with a lot of investment bankers, first in, as chief content officer of Time Inc., helping to sell that historic company to uh -huh. Meredith, and then continued with Meredith to sell off the four titles that they wanted to get rid of, Time, Fortune, Sports Illustrated, and Money. So I got an intense education in investment banking that I never really wanted. <laughs> but, 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 but Gary, let me say, I like, I like being CEO and I, I do you, you may not know this about me, but I, I actually became a journalist when I was nine years old, but also became a CEO when I was nine years old. I did a neighborhood <laughs> newspaper. I walked up and down the street and I wrote down what everybody, All right. you know, lost cats, grandmother coming to visit. I would write it up. I have this wonderful typewriter that my mother used to type it up and then I would right. run it off on a jelly sheet mimeographer and, and sell it for a nickel. So, so my interest in running business and my interest in journalism have wow. coexisted from, from the earliest years of my life. That's impressive, Alan. What was the biggest story you ever broke in the neighborhood? <laughs> it was a Lost long Cat? time ago. <laughs> it was a very long time ago. Well, I, listen, but but I, I have to say the other wonderful thing about mothers is she saved every copy and put oh. it in the book. So, so some, I have it right here if you would someday like to uh, <laughs> go through it. Well, maybe that'll sell. I think you should try that out. So listen, I, I talked about your, your morning newsletter, which I recommend to all my students at, at Boston University. You pack a lot into it each day. So what informs your journalism, what you want to write about each day? I think I've had the good luck over the course of the last 15 or 20 years to be able to spend a lot of time talking with, interviewing leaders of companies, the top figures in the business world. I can't think of many, frankly, that I haven't had the opportunity to interview either on our conference stages or for a podcast or a video or for a story. And I felt like there were important things happening among that group of people that weren't fully or widely recognized. Mm -hmm. And so that's really become the core of that email address. I think I have access to, to some information that isn't widely available and I want to share it. And it lets me, by the way, continue to keep a, a few fingers in the journalism business. <laughs> well, like today, this morning, you wrote about Jim Collins, of course, the author of Good to Great and yeah. changes in business that you're, you're a firm believer that it has changed fundamentally what was it about conversations with Collins that led you to write something today? Well, well, he he updated a, a book that he wrote back in 1992 called Beyond Entrepreneurship. 
and he updated it with his view from 2020. And so I quickly grabbed an early copy of the book because I, I wanted to see if he was seeing the same changes I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't any immediate evidence that he was. I think Jim Collins is invested in the notion that there are some rules of leadership that are unchanging over time. And so uh -huh. he provided new examples, but didn't really provide different rules. So I was eager to talk to him to sort of go back and forth on that, because as a journalist who's been watching business and covering business for four decades, I am absolutely convinced that there, there are some things going on today that are dramatically different from the way business was run 20 years ago, 30 years yeah. ago, 40 years ago. Picking up on that, I mean, I think even Fortune itself has gone through some dramatic change, which has happened on your watch. We, we tend, a lot of us tend to think about Fortune as this substantial magazine, but online, the event-based content, you've introduced a video hub, you know, the Fortune Global News app. And then on the print side, each issue is now centered on a central topic, such as artificial intelligence. You've also said you think Fortune will be more of a premium product. What does that mean? Oh, there's, there's so much in that question, Mike. <laughs> I know. <laughs> let, let, let me try and do a quick answer. Look, Fortune is 90 years old, so it's been around for a long time. And for 85 of those years, it was pretty much just a magazine. I mean, the conference right. business goes back 20 years, but not at the scale we do it mm -hmm. now. So you're talking about a heavily, and, and this was true, by the way, of all the Time Inc. publications, Time, Fortune, Money, Real Simple, et cetera. They were predominantly print magazine businesses. Time was structured to keep them that way. It gave all the video stuff to Warner Brothers. It gave all digital. The Fortune website six years ago existed on CNN. Oh, it was right. CNN money. That's yeah. right. We didn't even have our own website. So in five years time, what you've seen is first of all, a switch to digital. And this year in 2020, for the first time, we brought in more significantly more digital advertising than print advertising. So that in and of itself is a big change. But then the growth of the executive conference business, which by the time the pandemic hit was close to 40% of our revenues wow. and, and more than that of our profits. So it was a high end, Gary, you're familiar with it because you, your CEOs you worked for pr frequently participated in it. High end yeah, executive right. conference business. And then the new business that we launched in the last two months is an extension of that because the CEOs kept telling us, you know, this is great content. We like what you're doing, but the real need for this is not at my level. In the CEO, <laughs> in the C-suite, I've got lots of sources of information and lots of networks. The people who need this are the people about two or three levels below who are going to be in the C-suite 10 years from now. So we, in October, launched Fortune Connect which is a virtual platform that attempts to provide the same kind of business knowledge, leadership lessons, peripheral vision that we provided our conferences to a broader group of people. Now, you introduced a paywall this year yep. with kind of tiered levels of subscriptions. How's that working from a business standpoint and how does it alter kind of the journalistic perspective? I believed and I still believe the paywall is essential to the future of our business because as you move from print to digital, you're really in a world where you're competing with Facebook and Google who eat up 
80 to 90 percent of the increased advertising dollars every year. You, you can't survive on advertising mm -hmm. alone. Mm -hmm. So I think a paywall is critical, first of all, but second, also beneficial. And you hinted at this. You know, it gets you to think less about serving advertisers and more about serving the reader, the person you're actually trying to serve. So, so it's absolutely essential to the future of our business. Having said that, it's a, it's a tough slog because we were giving it all away online right. until, yeah. until a year ago. And you got to, you know, people get accustomed to getting something for free. It's not going as fast as we'd like. But we're, you know, we've got tens of thousands of people who have subscribed. It's growing steadily and, and we're going to keep working at it because we think it's essential to the future of our business. So I'm going to switch topics now, Alan. I, I want to talk about CEO activism, which you've written a lot about. But I want to ask you about one CEO, Elon Musk. And our <laughs> listeners can't see your office, but behind you is a great, the great cover of Musk from your most recent yeah. issue. And it's just fantastic. And I love the redesign of the magazine. Thank you. By the way, by the way, Alan is also hawking his books. You, our listeners can't see. <laughs> but, you know, that's, uh, you know, for another Many time. Many of them are still in print. <laughs> and purchased. So, so you just named Musk the business person of the year. And a year ago, just seems recently, in my crisis classes at Boston University, <laughs> I was talking about Musk and his erratic behavior, the SEC problems that he had, the statements that he made about the business that turned out maybe not to be so accurate. But now Tesla is, as you guys write, it's a great article. It's just crushing it in the stock market and in, in sales, et cetera, SpaceX, is put people in orbit and they're launching a new, more muscular rocket soon. Why has Musk been able to be so successful when he's been so erratic? <laughs> and look, Gary, you said I made him business person of the year. I don't get to do those things. And I have been as critical as you have of his yeah. erraticism and on Twitter craziness. I mean, remember the whole attack on that Thai diver who helped oh, rescue yeah. those kids from the cage where he called him a pedo guy and the attack on the SEC and where he said he had funding secured for yeah. a buyout. I mean, just sort of crazy and irresponsible behavior. And I, I, it's like, wow, do we really need that? But the business person of the year is based first and foremost on a very rigorous screen of, of business performance. Yeah. And you just can't deny what an extraordinary yeah. year Elon Musk has had. Some of it is in the stock price. And, right. and you can, you know, you can question how much of that is hot air. But man, it's like a 1000% increase over the course of over the course of 12 months. And then he did what a lot of people thought he would never do. He's turned it into a profitable company. It's had profits exactly. five quarters in a row, which is pretty amazing. I, I'm very conflicted about this. By the way, when I was talking to Jim Collins last week, he he one of the things he says in in Good to Great, you'll remember the CEOs who who were built for the long term and really survived over the long term. They had a certain number of characteristics. One was humility. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone has ever used that word in reference to Elon Musk. So I'm I'm very conflicted about this. But man, oh, we you talk can't a lot. Of, yeah. We talk a lot of at Fortune about having an underlying purpose. Musk has the biggest purpose of them all. He right. wants to 
single-handedly fix climate change and build a colony on Mars just in case, you know, <laughs> no other company or no other business person is as bold in their purpose. And as crazy as that sounds, he's making real progress in that direction. So I think you, you, with all the caveats about his personality and his erraticism, you really have to take your hat off to what he's accomplished. I just try to think every now and then, Alan, about the head of communications, although they did get rid of some of their people. You know, I've been through some things in my career, but wow, uh, that, that's got to well, be an interesting... It, it's pretty clear to me, Gary, that, that the head of communications is Elon Musk. <laughs> absolutely. 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 So, so you, you've, we talked earlier about changes, and, and certainly one of them is expectations socially and internally for CEOs to be more active, Alan, right, on, on policy. So who's doing it well, and what are the limits to CEO activism? Well, well let, me, let me start first with the change. I mean, I think CEO activism is part of a bigger story about CEOs focusing more on their positive contributions to society. We can come back to that. But let's yeah. just talk about the activism part, speaking out on controversial social issues. One period in my resume that you overlooked was in the the, which is fine, I'm not complaining, <laughs> was from 2002 to 2005, I hosted a television show on CNBC where we were frequently oh, reaching right. out to CEOs and there was a fair amount of, of controversy at the time. So I, I've long been in the business of trying to get CEOs to comment on controversial sure. social issues. And as you know, Gary, because you were a part of this, the standard response of any CEO when faced with a controversial issue that didn't directly affect their bottom line was to get under the desk. Right. <laughs> there is no right. way. Exactly. I'm, I'm going to talk about that. And, and I think this really, I give Mark Benioff actually of Salesforce yeah. a lot of credit for changing this in 2000. And it was either 2014 or 2015 when Indiana passed a controversial religious liberties law that was perceived by many people as discriminating against gays and lesbians. Benioff was the first to come out and said, you know what, you do this, we're going to close down business in your state because it's not right for our people. And there was a, there was a steady increase after that. I mean, one of the amazing, Delta Airlines is a good example. Yeah. In Atlanta, the Georgia state legislature, the majority of the members belong to the NRA. After Parkland happened, Delta withdrew its promotional rates for going to the NRA convention, which was an amazing thing to do when you're in a state like that. Absolutely. Uh, similarly, North Carolina passed a law a little bit later that restricted transgender access to bathrooms. Now, imagine in your career, your advice to the CEO when he said, should I say something about this transgender access? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if we brought it up to them, they'd say we're crazy. Yeah. You would lose your job. Yeah. Um, and yet it, and yet the business community felt it had to speak out and bank of America, the largest employer in the state of North Carolina came out strictly criticizing that. So this has been growing up for a period of time. I think the biggest single example of it came this year with George Floyd. Absolutely, yeah. The number of passionate statements out of CEOs was really extraordinary. And 
of, of course, cynics, my, cynics, which is a word that describes most of my colleagues in the press, and, and Gary, you probably used it to describe me from time yeah. to time. No, 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 all good. But, you know, cynics said, oh, it's just words, and maybe it is just words, but even going back to Ferguson, which was oh, totally. 2015, yeah. no CEO said anything about Ferguson. Exactly. Had this yeah. So I think that's the most, of, of a big pronounced change, and yeah. it's complicated because you can't, speak out on every issue you got to pick your sure. shots very carefully sure but you've all you also have helped foster that i think in some ways i mean i remember in 2015 fortune launched the change the world companies list i was at cargill at the time we were very proud to be one of the participants on that first list and then more recently fortune and mckinsey and company did a series of roundtables with ceos who worked to pursue a corporate purpose as well as run profitable innovative companies you issued a report that was intended to serve as something of a playbook on this. What exactly did you find in that? Well, let me give you just a little bit of history first, because we this has become core to what Fortune is and what Fortune does. We, we believe our purpose is to make business better. And uh, you know, what happened back in 2015 was I kept hearing more and more CEOs talking about wanting to improve their impact on society. And I looked at our lists and we have all kinds of lists, Fortune 500, <laughs> my size, fastest growing companies, you know, best places to work, most admired company, you name it. We didn't have anything that attempted to measure their social impact, positive social impact. And so we created the Change the World list. We did an extraordinary conference at the Vatican in December of 2016. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Brought together 100 CEOs, no politicians, and said, let's talk about what the private sector can do to address some of these big global problems. Very inspirational meeting with the Pope. That led to the creation of something called the CEO Initiative, which is a community of CEOs that meet on a regular basis to try and improve their impact on, on society. So, so all of this has become very important to us. But I have to say, and I thank you, Mike, for giving us some credit for driving it. But in some sense, we were following it. It was just happening. And in fact, the biggest surprise to me in answer to your question, Mike, is that in March, when the pandemic hit, I thought, oh, well, this is all going to go away now. There I mean, it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, Gary, what happened to the talk about the environment back in the last recession? Yeah, uh, that, disappeared. That, that, that GE was a big leader and then it suddenly yeah. disappeared. And I thought, oh, here we go again. Everybody's gonna focus on the bottom line and all this talk about stakeholder capitalism and impact on society is gonna be put on a back burner for a few years. And that is not what happened. In fact, it was just the opposite. I think because this was not first and foremost an, an economics crisis, it was a stakeholder crisis. Uh, right. you know, your employees were the first thing you had to worry about because of their safety, but also your the communities they operated in. And so if anything, it only intensified. Now, let me go back to Jim Collins quickly because your question, Mike, was about purpose. So we kept hearing and we were working with McKinsey, more and more companies talking about how important purpose is. Purpose doesn't conflict with profit. Collins' point is, hey, you go back to Johnson & Johnson. The Credo. The Credo. Yeah. The Credo. Or look at a company like Merck from the very beginning. Or he, he spent a lot of time looking into Patagonia. He said, this, he said don't confuse what's new with what's rare. He said, this mm -hmm. has always been the best way to build a business. 
but it's been relatively rare. And mm -hmm. so I did say, Jim, do you think it's become more common? And he said, oh yeah, I think it has become more common. So I finally got him to admit that something <laughs> had changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in some vein, I've always thought that, you know, in the accounting profession, I'm sitting here with a master's degree in accounting, even though I've spent my life as a communicator. But the, the interesting is they've got something called the going concern concept, you know, in accounting theory. And the reason you keep financial documents and is because you have a belief that this organization is sustaining, you yeah. know, and if, 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 and that's like the truest sense of sustainability. And if you, you know, look at that more broadly and largely, and you get into questions of like environmental sustainability, yeah. you realize that that all has to be sustained in order for you to sustain as an organization. That's right. But I, I think what is changing or what is going to have to change, and there's a lot of emphasis on it right now, is that that accounting infrastructure that you just referred to has been built up over a century mm -hmm. and a century in which financial returns and return to stakeholders were the main measure of corporate success. And as now we put more and more focus on the stakeholder returns, you know, how are you doing on the environment? How are you doing for your employees? How are you doing for the communities you, you operate in? How are you doing for your supply chain and the, and the disadvantaged communities they operate in? We're going to have to develop a more robust set of metrics to measure those. There's, there's a very good book by a, a professor named Paul Collier mm -hmm. called Prosperity, where he makes this point. And he actually talks about how the balance sheet of corporations has changed. That 40 years ago, if you looked at the balance sheet of a big corporation, you had a lot of plant and equipment, and you realized that, that the scarce resource there was plant equipment. Maybe it was oil in the ground. Maybe it was financial capital. And so you had to measure that and, and steward it carefully. So moving forward, we have moved the balance sheets of corporations today, it's much more about intangibles, intangibles. intangible property, stuff that's tied to the employees. So the, the talented employees become a scarce resource, also the environment and social acceptance. And so all of those things are going to have to be paid more attention to and measured more carefully in the future than they were in the past. I'm glad to hear that because that's one of the concepts I talk about in my one of my classes here at BU. Is this, right this transformation. And let's jump ahead to the Biden administration. So what do you think CEOs, including yourself, should expect from a President Biden? You know, there's a lot of talk of a corporate tax rate increase. And do you take comfort and should other CEOs take comfort in appointments like, of course, Janet Yellen over at Treasury? Well, I'm a big Janet. I'll start with Janet because I'm a big yeah. Janet Yellen fan. I actually uh, got a graduate degree in economics at the London School of Economics the right. year she and her husband were on sabbatical teaching there. Wow. So she was my teacher during that year. And I, I think what makes her so amazing is her ability to take the most complicated economic concepts and explain them in a simple and clear way. But I also think she did a great job running the Federal Reserve, even when her economic concepts weren't working the way she had taught them to me decades earlier. So I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of her. Look, I think there's an opportunity for business here. Business leaders, as you guys know, are by nature problem solvers. They're practical people. They want to get things done. 
you used to have people like that in government, but over time, it's kind of disappeared. Everybody's become a politician. They're just worrying about how you get the edge in the next election. <laughs> I think we have an opportunity now, in part because of split government, if, assuming that the Republicans keep the Senate. I, I don't think that has to be a recipe for gridlock. I think it means any substantial work that gets done will have to be negotiated between the two parties. I think there's a really important role for business leadership to play in those negotiations. And, and the people I'm talking to who head groups like the Business Roundtable are thinking about that. So I think we have the opportunity to create a much more effective dialogue that includes business leaders yeah. about how do we solve the big problems that we have to solve. I don't think tax increases will be first on the list because mm -hmm. increasing taxes <laughs> when you're in a recession just isn't a good idea. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think yeah. things like universal broadband and and think about more broadly as part of an infrastructure, infrastructure. program. Training awesome. is something that the CEOs are really focused on. We're, things are changing so fast. We need better training programs and platforms to provide opportunity to the people at the bottom of the income and wealth scale to, to move their way up. It's one of the sad things about our society today that that mobility seems to have frozen to some degree. And most of the business leaders I deal with want to figure out a way working with government to increase mobility. I guess one last question, given that the politicians that we've been dealing with recently have invaded about, you know, fake news and essentially created a sense that somehow all journalists are enemies of the people. And given kind of the economic challenges that have been faced in journalism with kind of the onslaught of online media and, and social media of one kind or another, what does the future of American journalism look like? Are you optimistic about that future? Well, I am optimistic, but it's not easy to be optimistic. It's really been a brutal, brutal time to have the president of the United States and others, not just attacking the media, but attacking facts, attacking truth, where, so that more and more people think that the truth is optional. You know, you can pick what you want to believe and, and being unable to distinguish between news organizations, even if they have biases, that actually report and double check their facts and try and get the other side of the story and news organizations that pass on rumor or frankly, some so-called organizations that just make things up. I think it's gonna be hard pulling out of that. I think it's gonna, it's gonna take some time, but, but I'm optimistic only because I believe at the end of the day to be a functioning society, we have to have facts and we have to have some accepted sources of truth that we can, sure, we can disagree about pieces of it, but to just, un that's what's been so horrible about the COVID crisis was there was this alternative reality out there. It just isn't true. It just has no basis in facts. We can't function as a society like that. We have to get back to an understanding of some fundamental facts as a basis for our debates. Well, thank you, Alan. As I said at the top, I completely agree with you on that. And I sincerely hope as business communicators, Mike and I always wanted strong business journalists. It was better for our company. Absolutely. Companies to have good people covering us. And, even if you and, curse them, even if you curse them a bit. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Absolutely. It's, look, you know, and you cursed us every once in a while, I think, too, you know. But listen, 
Alan's newsletter, the other Fortune newsletters as well are must reads. And I, I think the magazine today is just terrific, Alan. Great. And I, I highly recommend it to all the folks in our profession. Thank you for taking the time to be on the call. Yeah, thanks. Great talking to you. All righty. Take bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.